0: underpowered hour on today's show canadian market land rovers more new defenders in the u.s. than old nas ones inios breeds an isuzu trooper with a land rover defender and the land rover classic works and now here's the show Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at the Barris Collection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss.
1: Hi, I'm Stephen Barris' friend, Ike Goss, and uh, I operate a Land Rover shop, Pangolin 4x4, in today, cloudy Oregon.
0: Oh, it's too bad. You know, it was supposed to be crazy uh, rainy down here in beautiful Southern California over the last two weeks, and uh, I've been driving the Defender around because it's strangely the most waterproof car I have, which is I think saying something about the general uh, seaworthiness of my fleet. Um, but we really didn't get much. Now, of course, the East Coast is under like ninety-two feet of snow or something, and they're you know they're snowboarding off the side of the uh, you know of the Sears Tower. But um, we didn't really get much down here how about but you guys are are rainy uh, up there or it's just oregon
1: it's it's intermittent yeah it's the you know this time of year you've got uh sun and uh it's uh simultaneously raining so you have the the the, the rainbow it's rainbow season it's rainbow season it's rainbow season which is oh, fine man. i like rainbows
0: it's just who doesn't love rainbows it's sort of a a, a sun rain a, a slain if you will slain season
1: So uh, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, water tightness of your fleet, which you had mentioned.
0: Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I did... A while back, and you've seen my Defender, which is a a NAS uh, Defender, a 94 model in 93 build year NAS Defender that was originally a soft top because in Canada, uh, we didn't get the fancy hard tops because, of course, Canada's climate is known uh, for our love of convertible vehicles. Seeing as we have, uh, you know, five and a half days of warm weather a year, what what wouldn't you want uh, on your car but a roof? And so I actually got a— Roof that was originally from a wolf uh, defender uh, from the uh, Canadian uh, forces uh, out in, uh, out by Medicine Hat, and uh, retrofit that sucker uh, over top of my NAS safety devices roll cage, which required stripping off the don't bump your head padding. Which, whenever I say that to somebody who is far more precious about uh, the constitution of their NAS, Uh, Land Rovers than I am uh, like turns them a a, like a deep shade of white like they're they they throw up in their mouth a little bit and uh, you know are just so awestruck that I would have I would have stripped away the collectible padding around the outside of my roll cage
1: that padding is extremely valuable and and frequently dictates the value of the entire vehicle because it's like irreplaceable foam.
0: Yeah, it is an irreplaceable foam. That You know, at the time, I certainly, I don't know that I was thinking that I would keep this vehicle forever. Of course, now, I you know, I would never sell it. Uh, it's one of those things my daughter will have to deal with when I die amongst, let's be honest, a whole warehouse full of crap.
1: Probably a list of stuff. That-
0: yeah, I don't even think it's, it's high on the list, quite frankly. I mean, you've got, you know, yeah, that poor girl is going to have to deal with so much garbage uh, when I die. But you know what? Uh, that's what you get. You know, tough luck. Um, and so, yeah, so no, it's uh, it's it's probably the most seaworthy because it has had a roof uh, fitted by someone outside of uh, the UK um, and spent some time, you know, sort of sealing it up.
1: So I, I found your uh, description of Canadian market uh, defenders interesting because it's kind of the opposite of what Land Rover started to do when they, they began making vehicles for the Canadian market. Which is uh, everyone was a hard top, and they decided that um, the doors didn't need to be split into because uh, you know there's like polar bears and uh, and whatnot, so you would never take the door tops off. Right. And so they made one-piece doors for the series Land Rovers that were made in the Canadian market, starting with Series 1s and then continuing with Series 2s, and then I think they stopped doing it in the Series 3s. Mm-hmm.
0: So And those didn't have crankdown windows, right? Those were still slidey windows, but uh, but just without the, the divider uh, that allowed you to unbolt it from the bottom of the door.
1: Correct, yeah. yes. Yeah, they still had sliding windows, but it was now just a one-piece frame and you couldn't separate the top from the bottom.
0: I mean, that makes a lot more sense. I think, you know, with the NAS trucks, they tried to kind of compete with the Jeep of the day, sort of Jeep, you know, Wrangler, TJ, whatever they were at the day, and you know, I don't know that it necessarily addressed the same market. Um, Maybe in California, I think, you know, they were probably very popular here um, because you had the opportunity to take the top off and drive around like that. And then funny enough, the United States, of course, did get hard tops. Of course, they got the 110 as well as a 90 uh, in hard top that Canada never got, the one country that could really use a hard top. We never got them. We only got them the one year.
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I can't sure, I'm not sure I know how to explain their thinking on that, but uh, that is interesting.
0: Yeah, no, and, you know, there were so many great years of Land Rovers in Canada way early on, um, you know, Series 1, Series 2, and Series 3, um, great cars that came into uh, into Canada, and, and tons of them around, you know, they're they're everywhere, um, and, yeah, it was just weird that the, uh, I think the, the Defender, had there had been too long of a gap. I think since the time they sold a series vehicle in Canada and to the time they sold the Defender,
1: well, obviously had a huge British influence uh, initially, and uh, you know certainly British Columbia was a huge market for for Land Rovers. They were used uh, for municipal purposes, logging, um, and they sold a lot of them. <clears throat> but uh, that obviously changed over time, and I'm not sure at what point they were like. Eh. This is not a really a utility vehicle we need. Do you know more about that?
0: Well, I, I think at some point in the 80s, everything kind of transitioned to maybe even probably earlier than that, obviously the 70s, because the, the rovers were gone for the most part by the 80s. They had transitioned to sort of Ford and uh, Chevrolet or General Motors equivalents, you know, heavy air quotes there, obviously, but most of the municipal vehicles were some form of... Uh, if they were maybe a Forestry Service vehicle, they were going to be something like a Jimmy or they, uh, you know, uh, that equivalent, right? Something, uh, maybe a Ford Bronco, but probably realistically more like uh, pickup trucks. I think they converted largely the Forestry Service over to what was probably F-150s and Silverados and things of the, of the 80s with boxes on the back of them. I remember all of the Forestry Service people that would tell us we can't camp wherever it was that we were camping would always show up in a, you know, vintage Ford kind of pickup truck with the Canadian. And, uh you know the park service or whatever logo on the side of it and you know i don't even really remember i mean i've obviously seen pictures and and some of them up in the national park in banff where i'm uh uh from from that area they uh, they still had some of the older cars but uh yeah i don't know british columbia you're right way more popular also out east uh in ontario and stuff there was a ton of uh, because of the logging industry i think not so much in alberta um but in bc and and uh, in ontario a ton of uh a ton more
1: Well, that actually brings up a good point, which is uh, something interesting. You know, Land Rover as a utility vehicle and uh, their utility market kind of diminished, um, you know, throughout the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, they began obviously producing more upmarket cars, the Range Rover, most notably. Um, So, you know, I know there was a lot of labor strikes in Mm -hmm. that time period. And I think that uh, Land Rover as a company did not have the production capacity, you know, they lost a lot of their production capacity at that time, and never fully recovered. So they were kind of presented with a situation, you know, sort of an either or, do we pursue these upmarket more luxury vehicles, or do we pursue our more traditional utility markets? And uh, they couldn't really handle both.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I guess it's sort of the Range Rover killed the the radio star to a certain extent, right? I mean, once they got traction with the Range Rover, and then later on, I think the Discovery as well, um, which both came in like weird utility versions. Like, I love a Range Rover ambulance or like a Range Rover police car. Like, they're super cool, you know, two-door Range Rover fire trucks, which sort of seems like an odd uh, combo, but they're the coolest looking, uh, you know, and what an interesting, uh, what an interesting car, but obviously the the core market was consumers' luxury uh, you know sort of became more and more of a thing, even though you know I was gonna you know my classic is still quite luxurious. It has passenger rear passenger door side armrests. What other car has uh, armrests that flip down on either side of you in the back seat? It's uh, you know it's you're like the queen back there uh, can you can you
1: imagine that just someone saying, you know, Passengers get our, their arms tired too. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, and, you, you know, know rear. A...
0: Her Majesty needs a place uh, for both arms, uh, not <laughs> just not just the center sharing arm. Uh, but no, I mean it's a it's a neat it's a neat car, and you think about how kind of tech technological maybe but certainly luxury uh wise luxury wise um how advanced it was for the time it came out i mean even the old two doors um they're super nice inside and you know like they are way less utility than the land rover that is contemporary to them right i mean you look at the you know you think about the first uh the first two-door range rovers right around the same time the series late series two or early series series are coming out and they're like it's like a completely different car like it's so much nicer um it's just interesting that and and that happened to be the way that things broke and maybe i don't know maybe do you think it's because it's a newer manufacturing platform that all the labor required to put a series truck together compared to i'm sure what is more modern manufacturing that went into the the first range rover and then subsequent range rovers they're probably just easier to make maybe i don't know
1: I think that's true. You know, I think that uh, certainly a lot of the earlier vehicles, there's a lot of handmade content. And we kind of touched on that in our first episode or a pilot, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the new Defender is, is made to be produced in large numbers, whereas the old Defender wasn't. And that's certainly reflected in their production numbers. You know, that there's so much handwork in those cars, so many individual pieces, you um, it's difficult to scale that up yeah. unless you can scale up your workforce, and uh, certainly the number of drunk Englishmen uh, surprisingly has diminished over time.
0: Yeah, which doesn't stand to—it doesn't make sense, right? That you know, uh, but but you're right. I think that. Uh, you know, the, and the, the folks that were making Defender at the end of the run there, I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't an army of people. You know, there were uh, there were a few folks, uh, I think that the whole labor force, I don't know how many it was, but wasn't more than a few hundred. Um, and yeah, it would take them forever to make one of those cars. And it was, you know, still made on a modern production line and everything, you know, and it would get painted as of set and all that sort of stuff. And they'd drop in the, you know, that Ford Source TDCi motor and stuff. And it was a little bit, but still, I mean, man, you know, between, and you've said it before, before setting panel gaps to spot welding on uh, hood, uh, you know, tabs for the uh, for the high cap pickups and stuff. It's just everything so was so manual, Uh, you know, still, you know, in 2016, you know, they weren't made that much differently than they were making cars in the 60s and 70s.
1: No, you watch the those kind of promotional films of them sort of wrapping up the end of Defender production and they like uh they roll out some of those old guys who used to work on the production line. I think that's really theater. Those guys still worked on the production <laughs> line and that was just that was just them finishing their careers
0: working on the last Defenders. Yeah, that's right. They're then uh, taken out to the jungle track and uh, allowed to die. Um, they're
1: ma- they're made into part of the jungle of deck. the jungle
0: track. They grow into a tree, uh, sort of like a an aged uh, sage. Yeah, no, I mean it was really interesting, and and I don't know. You've seen the Grenadier thing, right? This uh, this project that essentially aims to sort of recreate some of the you know I think some of the feeling of the Defender, and and probably. Maybe even improve on the off-road capability, uh, but I don't know that it's the same sort of uh, sort of a thing. It's interesting. It kind of looks like if a if a and a and a Defender, uh, you know, sort of met on a torrid weekend getaway.
1: I I like to look at it as uh, an Isuzu Trooper. <laughs> and a defender were combined due to that split rear door arrangement that yeah, the your right. is somewhat famous for yeah but uh, uh, yeah that uh, I think is an Ineos product uh, yeah. uh, mr. Ratcliffe yeah is uh, is uh, in charge of that and uh, you know is hoping to make a vehicle that he claims is more in keeping with the original design um than than maybe what the new generation Defender uh, is. Right. So that's obviously a matter of opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I was going to say, you know, uh, see a vehicle that was more in keeping with the original, I would picture uh, a short wheelbase soft top, which is kind of the opposite of what they have made. Yeah, right. Which is a a long wheelbase wagon. At least that's the variant that I've seen. But Mm -hmm. I think it's also um, getting a lot of technical... Uh, work by Magnus Stare, mm-hmm. who uh, I think is the next generation of Steyr famous for yeah. building the the pins scowlers, yeah. 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 So it's kind of and it's made in Slovakia. Yeah. I think so. It's kind of got this, uh, you know, interesting uh, pedigree. You know, a lot of influences uh, from from Germany yeah. and from England. Yeah. It's yeah. it's. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's I'm cool.
0: Not- it's cool. I wonder. I don't know. I mean, if it's two hundred thousand dollars, or you know, even one hundred fifty thousand, even a hundred thousand dollars. Quite frankly, I don't know how much traction it's it's uh, going to get. I mean, Glädelwagens sell out their production line. I believe more or less the G wagon sells out more or less every year uh, of their production. Of no matter how absurd they make uh, a variant, you know, the portal axled version and things like that, they still sell them all. Mercedes is still able to sell them all, and of course, an absurdly high price tag. And it was often. And said you know well if Landerer made a defender the 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 original defender in a modern way it would cost two hundred thousand dollars and it would they could only make x number of them a year which is I guess just what Mercedes has said and I, I mean you know Mercedes unlike BMW, will make models that they only sell a super, super small number of the Maybach edition of the of the limousine style, uh, you know, the, the full-on Maybach that they made for a little while, and then now the Maybach edition of the big, you know, they, I think they make dozens of those a year. There's only so many princes in Saudi Arabia that need, uh, you know, new luxury limousines every year, so they don't, you know, they, they only make so many of them, but it's interesting. They're a giant manufacturer uh, that does these low-volume car things. I just don't think JLR, um, unless it was maybe something they did through the Classic Works or something, could really do that. They're not set up uh, to do that kind of stuff.
1: Well, I think they, they tried uh, recently to make something like that with the Defender Works V8. Yeah. You know, they produced a, like, a low-volume, high-performance, classic-looking four-wheel drive, and I can't remember exactly how they did those, but my understanding is they were, they had reserved a certain number of VINs mm-hmm. uh, uh, that were, you know, classic, quote-unquote classic production cars, and then they built the cars into works V8s, right. so they were really, really... Technically older vehicles like 2017s or something like that, yeah. And then they made this high performance edition. Um, so I, I think they've tried that, but uh, in terms of scaling that up and doing something like a Galandavug, and uh, again, I think it goes back to their production capacities. You know, yeah. Land Rover is kind of in this interesting middle zone where, you know, they're not really a entirely niche producer like a like a uh, Koenigsegg or, uh, you know, something like that where they're only making a few cars a year, but they're also not a Toyota or a Mercedes. So, you know, they're, they're limited in their production capacity and to tool up for a small number of cars like that is probably unrealistic. Yeah. Um, you know yeah we we can hope we can dream
0: well and they started you know down the road of producing that two-door range rover which i thought was so cool you know like a modern range rover but two door like absurdly two doors i think it was i mean the crazy reclining rear you know sort of learjet seats and things like really really far out there like a concept car that was for sale essentially and they were going to make i don't know a, a dozen of them or something and unfortunately it didn't it didn't hit because i think there was too much you know, financial strife and other things that just trying to make that car would be impossible. But it, you know, it would be interesting to see things like that. There's a market for them, small, very, obviously very small. I wonder, do you think there's a bigger market for doing the classic uh, sort of restoration projects? That seems to be all the rage now, not just Land Rover, obviously, but, um, you know, Aston Martin, I think, famously is doing this gold uh, finger uh, DB5, uh, where not only is it a like a handmade DB5, which I think is cool, but it's got all the uh, Bond gadgets uh, built into it. And I think they're two and a half million pounds, or maybe it's five million I don't know. It's some astronomical number. Um, at a certain point, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, that's right, and, and it really is because I don't believe it's road legal. So at some point, it, it doesn't matter because you're not going to drive it on the street. It's a you know, it's a toy to have at the at the house at the at the you know, at the cottage, the summer cottage, whatever, right? And so, but it's interesting that like the rebuilding or the restoring or the continuation of these classic uh, cars seems to be really popular, you know, I think Porsche is doing it. Uh, Mercedes is doing it. Uh, BMW is doing it. Um, Obviously, Land Rover uh, is is doing it. Uh, Aston Martin, and I'm sure. Actually, I'm sure if you look at any company, they're they're doing it or they've got something in the works. I mean, maybe not you know Ford and Toyota and stuff. Although Ford actually has a really interesting custom, custom more race muscle car kind of program. But you know, they even do uh, very custom tuning, very custom work for uh, you know for the Ford uh, Mustang and the Ford GT cars, obviously things like that. You know, so it's interesting that manufacturers are looking at their history these cars that people loved and instead of doing what i'm sure you know a lot of marketing and sales people are probably saying we got to look forward at the models that we're going to sell a bunch of those that's where we should be focusing that there's this sense of well no actually the history these vintage cars that like listen we're going to sell several dozen of them but the aspiration of owning those cars of those cars being around seeing them at things just gets excitement around the brand It, it pushes the brand forward."
1: Well, totally. And, uh, you know, everybody's nostalgic to a certain extent, especially car people. And so it makes sense for these companies to look back hey, you know, what were our successes? And let's celebrate those in a way that makes. People feel special, and the more special people feel, the more they're willing to spend money to to feel that way. So I think it makes sense, and uh, you know certainly it gets people talking about the brand. And for those of us who work with the classic cars on a regular basis, it gets people excited about those because again. That's not something they can do in, you know, large numbers. You can't really produce a handmade, whether it's a DB5 or a early 356 or whatever. You can't eat, produce them or restore them in, in large numbers. just not scalable. There's too much labor involved.
0: Yeah, and even the restoration cars. I mean, you can only find so many Series 1s uh, for... Uh, the Classic Works to Restore, right? There's only so many around that are even candidates for it. And again, I think there's probably more around than there are people who are willing to pay uh, the amount for it. I mean, I don't know if it's an indication of uh, of the success of that program, but of course the first one that the Classic Works restored recently sold at auction because the owner of that car obviously got into some uh, dubious uh, business and uh, those cars were uh, auctioned as part of a settlement. Um, but, it what two hundred and fifty some odd thousand dollars or something, right? I mean something in that ballpark, right? A doubling and some of the of the initial price of about what about ninety thousand dollars, I think. So that's it's a good indication that I guess the you know sort of factory restoration, the factory continuation sort of things do in fact have some value and are uh, are something that that people seem to want to collect, which I think is good. So.
1: Well, I, if you look at the labor involved in those cars and the amount of effort that has gone into researching and building them, it uh, definitely exceeds their price tag. You know, the it's one thing to make a production car at $90,000. It's entirely different to restore and build by hand uh, a car and sell it at $90,000. That's not something that is, um, you know, you're going to make money doing, uh, especially For a car company like Land Rover. So, I mean, honestly, those are undervalued cars and there's a limited number of them. So I don't expect them to diminish in value. Um, And like you said, there's only a certain number. While there may be a larger number of cars that are uh, technically surviving, you know, there's a smaller number of cars that are really... Mm -hmm worthy of restoring to that level
0: yeah yeah i agree and just to see i mean that obviously you know the classic works in uh in Oxfordshire is is amazing, right? I mean, it's part of the sort of uh, special vehicles, you know, new special vehicles complex, which looks like it was supposed to be a distribution center or something that like didn't end up working as a distribution center. So they figured uh, something else uh, for it. I, I don't know if that was the landlord or if it was Land Rover, but, you know, also where they house all of their collection of crazy uh, Land Rovers over the years that aren't at the uh, at the British uh, Motor Heritage Museum. But yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, it just, it's one extra facet of, of uh, things, I don't know that my taste. Obviously, my taste is insane because I uh, am am fixated on doing the majority of it myself, and and then when that doesn't work, I'll send it to you. But uh, I think most people, uh, you know, are. Uh, you know not able to necessarily do the research that's necessary to find a, a an ike goss to go through and make a masterpiece uh restoration whereas you know you go to uh the, the you know the factory if you will and i think there's a certain uh, assumption that it's going to be a very high quality and in the case of classic works it is it's extraordinary uh, and and the stuff that the jaguar guys are doing with the the d types and the um, you know and and the ultra e types it's it's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. They're uh, pieces of art, obviously, that uh, that just happen to to take gasoline and drive around. But yeah, it's interesting. Anyways.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, wonderful. It's good for the brand. It's good for enthusiasts. Uh, you know, it, it, it um, inspires people to do their own restorations, even if they're not of the, you know, ilk that can afford to spend $100,000 plus on a restoration. Gets them inspired to do their own, you know and it uh, gets people excited about driving the cars and using them and in addition to doing the series cars i you know they're doing range rovers too they're they're uh, vacuum forming the original type seats for those cars and uh, you know there's a lot that goes into the range rover and those cars are another level expensive just because they're more complicated and they use production methods that aren't necessarily available um traditionally outside of a production environment like it's not just like some guy restitching seats you know you have to make these molds and uh you know build a lot of infrastructure to make some of those pieces you know the dashboards and the Um, other pieces that make up those early cars that's not something that you wouldn't normally be able to make in your garage. Yeah, exactly. Unlike unlike the series cars, you know, you could could technically restore a lot of that in your garage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a a portion of uh, the parts that uh, we replace... Not a huge portion, but a portion of them are parts that we make. We've started to get into the 3d printing uh, of at least masters for things like you know the little rubber feet for underneath the the roof rack where you know I had to scan an original part and it's still iterating you know not quite there yet um, but that's a production you know that's a piece that having to produce that, At any volume is extremely expensive. It had to be injection molded rubber or whatever. It's got to be vulcanized, all that sort of stuff. That's not achievable for, uh, you know, even to be fair, a low volume production run is extraordinarily expensive. So some of these methods, even if it's not necessarily the manufacturing, but just the ability to scan uh, a piece. And get a really dimensionally accurate model of the original piece, um, and then be able to send that out to either 3D printing or, you know, uh, even 3D positive printing for the purpose of making molds out of it or whatever. I mean, that that technology has now become something that you know you need an iPhone and a, a little bit of time and, and some knowledge of how to properly light things and do photogrammetry and that sort of stuff. But you can do it, and you get really exceptional results. And I think that's also that's an, that's another level where we get to in the next five to ten years being able to print in different types of metals um, and being able to essentially reproduce a single part that is for the most part you know maybe visually uh, difficult to uh, differentiate from the original um, and at some point probably functionally. Uh, impossible to differentiate from the original, maybe even better, right? Maybe you're making something that used to be a cast part that, you know, was sandcast in the 1940s and now you're able to 3D print it by some made, you know, some metal fusion uh, 3D printing and now that's very expensive but soon it won't be Um, and you'll get a part that's actually better. It's going to work better. Um, It's going to, you know, that particular, you know, mount for an alternator for a car that doesn't exist anymore, an engine block that was very low number or something like that, um, being able to reproduce those parts without having to try to find one that just simply may not exist that's that is very cool i think that's that's a really interesting uh you know place to to look going forward
1: no i think that's really exciting for uh restoring excuse me restoring older automobiles you know the ability to find some of these pieces that uh because of their low numbers or uh the lack of survival um that are very difficult for enthusiasts to get a hold of it's going to make uh, you know, a whole another group of vehicles, not just Land Rovers, uh, possible to restore. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Some of that, some of that early Japanese stuff is really hard to get parts for. Mm-hmm. People are really excited about those cars, mm-hmm. but they're hard to live with because you know you can't get parts for them. But if you can make parts in the near future, you know I see the value of those cars really increasing, and and uh, parts availability is really what drives enthusiasts. And, and uh, drives the enthusiast car market if you've got an old car it's hard to be really excited about it if you can't drive it or fix it so yeah parts availability is huge and that's one of the the great things about old land Rovers. is compared to a lot of their contemporaries parts are pretty easy to get
0: oh man yeah no it 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 is sort of embarrassing, actually, how much of it is available, how much you can get. I mean, not, you know, obviously, you know, and you and I know that well, some of the old Series 1 stuff's a little tricky, getting it right, getting stuff that's well made. But if you're driving, you know, like my almost daily driver, the Series 3, although it's sort of taken apart right now, but um, – there's almost no part I can't get for it nothing that would keep it from running anyways um, you know certain little fiddly interior bits and things maybe not but uh, certainly if it's a common uh, you know engine issue something that's going to wear out need replacement it's three or four days away you know, it's not a it's not a difficult car to keep running and keep on the road. The Defender, obviously, classic Range Rovers, all those, uh, you know, from the three point uh, nine liter all the way up to the four and change liter Buick based motors. Those cars uh, share a lot of common parts with, uh, you know, American cars, American GM cars. So it's uh, Buick cars. So it's not a uh, you know, it's not a hard it's not a hard car to live with. To your point, it's uh, they're actually pretty they're actually pretty reasonable. So.
1: I think that's great, and that'll continue to drive enthusiasts towards uh, those brands that are easy to live with. Uh, even as we continue to go into different types of engine conversions to meet, you know, emissions regulations in certain places, you know, if you can still get parts to make them look like an old car, I think people are going to be continue to be excited about them, and that'll keep the values high and keep. People excited about them and keep them driving them.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to leave off for today. And I think a great uh, cl- cliffhanger, I don't know, preview of next week. I'd love to chat a little bit about uh, what does electrification with uh, you know GM saying by 2035 every car they make is going to be electric uh, what does that mean for the enthusiast market what does that mean for uh, those of us with uh, you know series land Rovers that want to continue to drive them into the future but also uh, you know know that fossil fuels aren't maybe great for the environment and aren't maybe going to be as plentiful uh, as we look into the far future obviously past uh, well past 2035 when there's some scarcity around that what uh, what what are your thoughts on that? So I'll leave you there, Ike, and uh, give that a mull over, and we can uh, we can chat about that in the future, and and uh, perhaps there's a uh, uh, you know there's a there's an amazing revelation uh, to be had uh, there, I'm sure. Just hook up a Series One starter motor; those things are the size of like an airplane starter motor. So you know, just uh, that that'll drive the whole car. Just oh. continually hit the starter button, and it's all electric. You know, just put it in gear and and you're off. I'm
1: looking I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the future. As long as I can drive a Land Rover, it'll be great.
0: Indeed. All right, sir. Until next time. We'll chat again soon. Thanks, Stephen. The underpowered hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss consider supporting the show through our Patreon. And when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.